Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to the show. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice, and it's good to be back. Wanted this guest on my show for a very long time, even longer than before I started reaching out to her. Today we have Molina Williams-Haas, who is a polyhyphenate. She is a writer and a blogger and a librettist and a former IMSA leader and a kink teacher and an actress, and she does all the things beautifully and wonderfully and i am so thrilled you're on the show welcome to fat chicks on top thank you so much and i'm gonna give a shout out to you and device for your loving persistence and being like come on my show no seriously come on my show and i'm like no it comes to your show and then six months go by <laughs> we're delighted to have you you are not the first that i i've had to do this with i find that most full-time kink educators and performers are all over the place so much that it's a thing. There, there's so God, there's so much I want to talk to you about, and I really try to be respectful of the time slot we're in. So let's start with you. Initially started out life pursuing acting. Yeah, yeah. I, you, I, I. Well, you were so successful. I feel like I was it. cutting you off. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> I actually started professionally when I was uh, about six years old. My dad had taken my family to see the remounting of the original musical Hair on Broadway. And so this was like maybe like 73, 74. And at the end of the show, everyone is naked in big low paint. They're in the audience. They're pulling people on stage. And when we were leaving the theater, I said to my parents, I'm going to do that. That's what I want to do. When I grow up, I'm going to be an actor. And uh, they were like, yes, yes, of course. And then possibly a year or so later, a friend of my mother's said, you know, you need to get this kid an agent. She's amazing. And I said, yes, mommy, you need to get me an agent. And so that's what happened. I got an agent. I started doing film, TV, commercial print work, voiceover shit when I was probably about six years old. It's one of the the strange coincidences because the first thing I saw when I saw any type of, of stage show was hair, but the people in mine weren't fully naked because it was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hey, they're doing hair in Salt Lake City. I'm trying to imagine there's entire their entire musical numbers that I'm sure were uh I can't see scrim. how you could do I, I, can't, I can't see how you could do sodomy in Salt Lake City. Like, that song can't be sung. <laughs> well, and this was like 77, 78. I mean. Oh my God. Wow. 
wow, that, oh, wow. I'm just going over to the show in my head. I'm like, nope, nah. (laughs) I'm also trying to to figure out, like, delicately how to ask, like, did they have enough Black people to actually perform Colored Spade and Happy Birthday, AB Baby? Were those (laughs) some little white kids? (laughs) Oh, my, oh, my dear. Oh. Ill, yeah, let's Ill. just. Yeah, it was not a true representation of the original musical. Oh my god, that is gorgeous! I can love it. <laughs> and so, yes, you you pursued acting. You're quite successful. You've been in in a couple of very well reviewed films. How did you go from that to? Hey, I'm going to talk about my sex life and my kinks and (laughs) it was like it was one of these sort of like organic progressions because as an actor of course what you're doing is you're handed a script and you need to figure out how to be this other person when i was uh living in los angeles i moved to la when i was probably about 21 22 years old with my then boyfriend our relationship then fell apart and i was on my own i was dating doing other stuff I started hanging out with a social group that was centered on a bunch of JPL, NASA, rocket scientist people. And I met them because they were all doing true on a play that I was in. And I found out that one of the guys who was a friend of the assistant stage manager and I went to high school together. And so I instantly had cred with all the rocket scientists. They were like, oh, you you came up with these guys. I'm like, yeah could be a rocket scientist if I wanted to, but actually I'm just going to be an actor and take my brilliance and utilize it that way. And I started hanging out with them. And one of the things that we would do on like Friday, Saturday nights is we would literally just like sit around the campfire, pop a couple of brews and just like swap stories of like craziness that we had done past life shit. Like, you know, and everyone tried to one up the person with more outrageous tales and when it came to anything having to do with sex, I always won. And uh, so this became sort of the history. But in addition to that, I had a crazy childhood. I was, you know, like a child actor. I had a kind of a nutso dad who dragged us around the world several times between the ages of six and 10 for me. So I saw Western Europe. I saw North Africa several times. I have billions of these insane stories. And so I became kind of known as a person who had these amazing stories so we'd get to the next campfire night and someone would be like oh mo you gotta have they were like have you heard her story about the time her dad almost drove them off cliff in north africa people like no what so it became sort of this tradition among my friends that i would tell these stories of my life and then as i you know got older moved to san francisco i'm the bay area now i'm exploring pink and 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 discovering that and had the newbie like oh my god this is so amazing i just need to tell Everybody. And so my non-kink identified friends started hearing stories about my explorations, my first few years. And I got to the point where I was telling the same stories over and over again. And a friend of mine said, you know, you can just do a solo show. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of those. But this was before solo shows were a common thing. You know, you had one or two very high profile performers. You know, you had what's his face who did swimming to Cambodia. Uh, I can't remember what the name of the, uh, what is his name? Gray. Oh, gosh. Gray uh, is the last name. Yes, um, yes. Uh, Stur- Balding Gray. Gray. Balding Gray. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> so you had something like that, but it was sort of an anomaly. 
And in my younger years, I had seen a couple of examples of things that were very solo show-esque. I had the privilege of working with Sandra Bernhard for a year at the Orpheum Theater in New York. Um, I saw Margaret Cho do a show. I saw Annie Sprinkle do a solo show. I saw Kate Borenstein doing solo shows. Um, hilariously and interestingly, most of, so many of these women are now friends of mine in this community after having seen them in my 20s. And I said, actually, I think this is a lot closer to what I want to do in terms of performance. I want to talk about my life. And I felt very driven to do that. And I had uh, been a part of a small theater company that was up and coming. And one season, the artistic director said, we need to do a show that's really deep. We have almost nothing left in the budget. Hey, well, why don't we do like a solo show? You can just get up and tell your story. That's cheap. And I was like, okay, fine, let's do that. And so the first thing I did officially on my own was called 69 Stories, One Pervert's Tale. And it was basically answering all of the questions that every quote-unquote vanilla person had been asking me over the past three or four years. And it was people would say like, well, how did you get into this? Well, let me tell you about this guy. Well, how did you do this? Like, well, let me tell you about this scene that I did with this, you know, really cute girl. And so it became a, a, a way of doing community reach actually accidentally and i've done maybe five or six iterations of that show it sort of grows and changes with time because of course the shit that was important to me in 1997 is now history right and so that has grown and shifted with me as i've gotten older and now i do you know a lot of storytelling events when i can i have expanded into telling stories not just about sex but also I have a, a solo show called Hyena, which is about my recovery. It's about my um, going through rehab because I'm in recovery for terrible alcoholism. And I had a very interesting uh, spiritual slash psychological slash uh, psychotic break that resulted in me hanging out with a oversized screaming hyena that was interesting that I should go leave the rehab and drink. And that became a solo show as well. Um, in conjunction with my husband slash Dom slash owner, who was a composer of some great merit. And he heard my storytelling and said, oh, you know what, I'm going to write music for this. And so we've busted it out even more into storytelling with music. And then the storytelling has also moved into writing a libretto that we're working on together that he's now writing the music for and we're creating. So it's been this sort of Seeds were planted, plants grew, cuttings were taken from the original idea, moved in other pots. Now I have this sort of huge garden of art that I'm living in, and it's fucking amazing. In doing all of that, it requires you put out a lot of very vulnerable parts mm -hmm. of yourself. Absolutely. And while actors will tap into that vulnerability, they're often portraying somebody else on screen. Right. How did you get comfortable? talking about things that are so close to the bone. Hmm. I will say the first step was talking about sexuality before talking about, you know, alcoholism. Sex was the first, the first sort of like taboo subject. And what I realized is I have been that person since I was a fucking kid. I have like, you know, a Facebook group, for example, with people that I've known since elementary school since high school and when these groups started forming and people were sort of flexing and like oh this is what i'm doing this is what i'm doing yada yada and i was like hey yeah at the, at the time i was working as a web manager for alt.com bondage.com 
you know, I had just left a job at kink.com and, you know, this was my thing. And everyone's reaction in my whole class was like, oh, well, of course. <laughs> there was no stock. There were no pearl clutch. And people were like, you know what? That's so you. Like, that's exactly what I would have thought. Like, if you could have filmed everyone in our class and said one of these people is out here talking about S&M, they would have been like, it's got to be. And so I realized what was remarkable about that is I have been who I am my whole life. I have been the kid who was, you know, reading the book on the side and whispering in the classroom and yelling in the schoolyard and talking about that and advocating, like once we were becoming sexually active, advocating for people to find their own pleasure and protect themselves. Because this is the, you know, like late 80s and and AIDS and HIV were starting to um, really impact us. And so I came up in a generation where we had to worry about STDs that could kill us. And I was out there like throwing condoms at people. And so this has always been my path. So when it came to speaking about it, it felt natural for me and relaxed. It was far more difficult to move into talking about alcoholism and talking about the ugliness that is addiction. And part of my ability to talk about it was the fact that when something terrifies me, it is an absolute sign for me that I need to do it. You know, that is, that is, it, this is not always the case for every human being, but my, one of my signals when I have a project and I'm like, oh my God, there's no way. That's like my subconscious going, oh, mm, yeah, you really, really got to go and do this. And one of the sort of crazy spiritual experiences that I had in my very early recovery was a conversation that I had with God. I like left my body dissociated. The Hindu deity Ganesha appeared and I was like, this is nuts. I've clearly lost my mind. I don't even have any affiliation, association, no connection with this type of, 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 of belief system. If like Isis or Osiris or Hathor had appeared to me, like one of the ancient Egyptian gods, I could have seen it. If, you know, yeah, my gay had appeared to me, I like, I was like, I could have seen it. I could have got it. But this was not anywhere that I had traveled before. And basically Ganesha, who was a god of creation and obstacles and putting obstacles in front of you and or removing them. Um, he's also known as the god who actually has written holy scripture. And so, you know, I said, this is a lot that I'm aligned with. And the message that I received from him was multifold, but the core of it was, you are required to live as loudly and as openly as is possible. Whatever you do, dare it. It doesn't matter how insignificant you think it is. It doesn't matter how strange you think it is. It's irrelevant. Say it. Put it out there. And that's been my challenge. And so I said, okay. You know, yeah, I'm going to get up and I'm going to talk about how ugly it is to be an alcoholic and passed out in bed in your own bodily fluids and unable to move. And the the absolute horror of living in a body that does things that you don't want it to do. And what was remarkable to me was a lesson that I learned in a storytelling class when I first started studying storytelling. What she'd said to me when I was very worried about talking about kink, I said, how is me talking about getting my ass beat going to resonate for people who are terrified of pain. And she said, it doesn't matter what the story is as long as it's true and it's personal. 
because humans want to find connection and they will find a way to connect with you as long as you are telling the truth. And so the first time I got up on stage and was like, hey, I'm an alcoholic, talk to this hyena. While I was in rehab, she was trying to get me to drink again. And now I'm trying to deal with her in my life as an aspect of my humanity and all this shit that sounded crazy to me. And I walked off of that stage and there was a line of people from the audience who had jumped up would say, oh my God, that really landed for me. I'm sober. I'm this, not that. Someone else was like my dad, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle. Then I had a woman come up and say, I'm not an alcoholic, but what you said was exactly what my depression is. It's this that just claws at me. And and someone else was like, yeah, I'm not an an addict, but that voice is my mom who perpetually humiliated me. And, and, and seeing it as this distinct entity, like, yeah, now I can kind of, you know, and then I talked to a therapist who was like, who I was like, can you just give me a prescription? Because I don't want to be like this anymore. I prefer to not have conversations with gods and demons. And she said, well, actually, what you're doing is a, is, is there's forms of adult therapy that specifically invite people to fragment into these aspects of themselves see where they are, and then reintegrate them. She said, so you can sort of jump level four, but keep going, keep talking to these parts of yourself. And I was like, no. And it was remarkable to me because the more specific and the weirder and the more pissed I was, the more people said, yes, yes, I am seen. They were seen. And, and, and that's how I move forward because Part of the reason that I'm still alive, I fervently believe, is because I have the capacity to put my, you know, to spill the guts without harm and fear. And it's my service to humanity. It's part of what I want to do in this body, on this earth, till I can. For a lot of folks, we they go through a period of shame and not wanting to to be out and boisterous. And one of the things I've found on this show by talking to quite a few sex educators or people who've moved into that field now as they've been older is that wasn't part of their experience, which is what it sounds like for you. Can you identify what it was in your childhood that gave you the freedom to do that and not worry about disappointing mom and dad or being yelled at in class by teachers or whatever? Well, uh, it's on the one hand, I went to a school for quote unquote gifted children. And so we were treated very differently than the child in an average school. And that actually saved my life because I had parents who were kind of a mess. Uh, my father was in the, uh, in the war in Vietnam. So he came back with PTSD and some severe psychological damage. But of course, he was not going to be treated because he was fine. And I had a mom who had been studying design, fashion design, when she got pregnant by some guy she had just met. And this was like 1968. So they got married and that's what they did. And um, I was always a very weird kid and I had very accelerated. Like, for example, I started reading when I was about three years old and I was... um able to have conversations with adults that would stun them. And to that point, I was also able to discern when my parents were full of shit. And so I became one of those kids who was basically emotionally emancipated, probably by the age of six. I could see my parents doing things. And I said, you have no idea 
what the fuck you're doing. You know, my, I, I would, I would ask questions of my mother, like, why don't you divorce daddy? You were both unhappy. Both of you were sad. You should get a divorce. No, you have to stay married. Why? Because the Bible says so. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And then I would read the Bible and I'm like, I didn't see that there. Can you show me where it says that you should stay married when you're sad? And they were unable to back up their uh, arguments with proof and evidence, which is a standard to which I had become accustomed in my, in my, in my little school for gifted weirdo neurodiverse freak children. And so I was like, you know what? Y'all are untrustworthy. And so at that point, basically, I decided and made my own choices for what I did. It was not dependent on permission from my fucking parents. And really at no point. Um, a lot of what I did was doing caretaking eventually for, you know, my parents did eventually get divorced. And then it was me and my mom and two younger sisters for whom I was partially caretaking. And so I was like, oh, look at what happens when you make decisions that are based on being scared because you have to do something. You know, that was my understanding that my, I was like, you could not have dropped out of school because you were pregnant. That's a bad move, Ma. And she was like, could you say that? But then I would never have had you. I'm like, so I would have been born. I was like, don't worry about that. I was coming. <laughs> Whether or not it was you or someone else, I would have been born. Or I would have been born to you when you were prepared for me. And wouldn't our lives have both been better and 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 smoother that way? And so I always was of a mindset of do the thing that feels right to you. And thankfully, when I was in school, uh, I had a very strong theater community in school. So if I wasn't doing film and TV, I was doing theater at school or in one of the after school programs that I attended. So I always had my little career going on throughout my life on some level somewhere. And so that was a constant sort of drip feed. <laughs> of that of that artistic impulse having an outlet having a place to grow with that and doing what feels right to you did kink feel right from the beginning oh yes and no um it felt right to me because it was so organic the first experience that i had was not a two-purpose kink event. It was just some guy who was really very pushy <laughs> and really very bossy and then really very slappy and really very spanky. And it triggered in me this desire to just do whatever the fuck he wanted to keep him happy. I was like, oh my God, what do you need? Coffee, tea, laundry, blowjob? What is it? I, I just need more of that shit. You're laying down. And it took me probably about a year or two of, of being focused on how I could adjust my life to be with this person to realizing, wait, maybe it's not just him. Maybe, maybe this is like a larger thing. And I was certainly aware of the leather community, but growing up in New York, the only leather community I'd seen was gay men in the West Village. And so I did not have an exposure to the fact that like, you could do this if you were like, just like a little bi girl, you know, like, especially a brown bi girl. And then I started doing some research and I had seen that in the Levitt community, even then, I was going to be a minority in a minority in a minority. It was just going to be that way. But I didn't feel that sort of sensation when you feel like you don't have a choice, but in a good way. You're like, this is, this is the only way forward. Like, I gotta, I gotta do this. And so I always felt like it was right for me where I started to hit my nose against the wall was when I realized that some of my fantasies that involved actively utilizing the fact that I am black 
and I'm possibly potentially playing with a person of valor, as I like to refer to y'all. And the dynamics there are present regardless. You can't ignore them. And I said, well, what if we lean into that? I'd had some very incredibly dark fantasies around, you know, being like poor slave girl who's, you know, like swept off her feet and mauled by like the evil plantation owner. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going straight to Negro health just for this alone. Ain't no way like Dr. King is going to like rise from the grave. Can the fucking be like, girl, we didn't march on Washington so you could jerk off thinking about some white man taking advantage of you. I'm like, oh my God, but it's so hot, Dr. King. You have no idea. And the reality is that like when I tried to put myself into that, I had so much guilt and so much error. And that was reinforced by the fact that there were not a lot of people of color in the scene. When I did bring up that type of that type of play, most white people, thank God, don't get me wrong, yay, were like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. But I'm like, well, good, you should be like. But then also, the very few Black people, African-American people specifically, who were in the scene, wanted nothing to do with even discussing that out loud. And so I basically hit the scene and started like blowing shit up um, without even intending to, because I was just like, hey, we're all kinky, right? We can say anything we want as long as it's consensual. Absolutely the fuck not. All kinks are not created equal. They're definitely kinks that even hardened perverts are going to be like, ew, for scoffing and laughing up their sleeve at. And so I immediately landed on that square and was like, fuck. How did I like find finally get up the gut to 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 come and explore this? And then I'm told, no, you're too fucked up to hang out with perverts. <laughs> it was so overwhelming, and it was it fucked me up for a couple of years. I'm gonna be honest. There was a uh, I went from not seeing any black people at events to seeing maybe one, two, three at a party of three hundred people. Who within two three years in the scene. It had really taken hold, and there was a, a black women's black submissive women's tea group that met once a month, and it was it was my heart was so full that we could have this gathering. And after the third and fourth gathering, I was told I was uninvited because my discussions on uh, race play were making two of the women there feel unsafe. And I was like, uh, "We've never talked about that at any of the teas." We've all just been like, you know, talking about our relationships and about life and about like, hadn't even come up. But the fact that that I existed was too threatening for them. And so this camaraderie that I had so desperately craved was yanked away. And that was absolutely horrifying and humiliating to me. And and I was like, I, I, I don't know what to do. And maybe I should just stop. And then within 24 hours, I was like, no, fuck them hoes. Fuck you. Because for every person that is trying to shut me up, there's some other person that's in my DMs talking about, you know what, I'm so glad you said that because I've had that fantasy and I thought I was a horrible person and I thought I was fucked up and I thought I was the only one. And I'm like, you're not. You are not. And therefore, I did that thing that I do when someone says no. I'm like, really? We're shifting into fifth gear. We're putting on the snow tires and we're coming for you. (laughs) And we're coming because I feel like those are the things that the community needs to uncover is the judgment and the um and the the humiliation of people who have fetishes that other folks don't like. 
And I just, I'm tired of it. I'm exhausted by it. And so the more hate I get along those lines, the more it fuels me, the more that people are like, oh, this is terrible. I'm like, really? You think so? Here are eight TikToks on the subject. Now you can go and cross-reference them at your leisure. You know, I got my own little list. I'm like, here's some up shit on TikTok. Click over here on your own risk. I'm going to be talking about the shit that's going to get real. If you don't like it, you don't have to go over there. But here it is for the real ones who are like, you know what? I'm having these feelings. I'm a grown-ass adult. I want to explore this in a way that is consensual and and safe for me, for my boundaries and my limits. Let's do this. And and it's, it's been so revelatory for me. So many people in the past couple of decades have written to me or come to me or 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 will approach me after a class I'm teaching and be like, oh my God, thank you for saying that. I thought I was the only one. And that's that's gold. That's that's bank money for me, you know. And that's how I found your work was the the information you were putting out there around race play. Because when I came into the public scene, I'd been playing in private for for decades. But when I came into the public scene, because of my physicality, I'm a little over six feet tall. I'm a very big girl. I'm built like a linebacker. People assumed I was dominant. Yeah, and. I had quite a few black men seek me out to engage in race play. Um, and I had all my feels around it because I had written my dissertation on multicultural education and the, and how that shapes racial identity. So I think brothers are rolling up like, excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> so I had spent like a decade in grad school steeped in American racial politics and to have guys on on fet life and stuff say hey are you willing to beat me i'm like oh there's a whole lot i gotta unpack here <laughs> and that's a lot that's how i came to your work and i want to kind of break this down because this is not a conversation i really have met too many other people i can have it with mm-hmm. um so there's a lot of people on on the white side who are attracted to race play because it allows them to manifest their own prejudice. Right. So how do you cut through just on that? Because I'm sure there's plenty of folks who are up in your DMs going, hey, I'll call you all the dirty names you want. Let, <laughs> let, why don't you come over and scrub my floors while I throw some racial epithets at you? <laughs> like, through that and get to a point where it can be consensual. Right. The thing that I talk to people about, with first and foremost, is I very rarely am approached, actually. Like, they were, I, I can count on one hand. I think people are aware of my of my high profile and the fact that I will read them for filth in public if they come with, if they come in correctly. And so I think that keeps people, I think that keeps the, that tamps it down a little bit because I know pretty much every other brown person I know is getting those approaches. And one of the things that I talk about when I do these classes is first of all, people think I'm out here like selling this shit. I'm like, the first half of my class is all why you should not do this. Literally. I'm like, here's I got and I got 90 minutes, 45 minutes of it is going to be horror stories and the reality of what you're actually doing and the risks you are taking. And then it's like, okay, you heard all of that and you still want to do it. Here's, you know, and then one of the first things I say is I am one of the advocacy points I make is as the person who is assuming the subjugated role, that is the person who must lead the approach and the negotiation. 
from whatever side you're doing it. So if you are doing some sort of, you know, and race play can be anything, right? Like there's people always think it's about black people. The first demo I did in public was me getting beaten down by a cholo who was angry at like the, like a black woman cutting him off in traffic or whatever the fuck it was. Right. And then white people were like, Oh my God, you don't go race without us. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, bitch, I said, like, look around the world. Shit is real. You know, there is those gaps are everywhere. And I was in like I was Ireland, for example, one of the whitest countries you could possibly imagine. And I tripped a bunch of triggers in the room when we were talking about it. I'm like, okay, so who are the minorities here? Who are the oppressed? Who are the and someone's like, oh, like you mean like the travelers? Or you know, they were still calling them gypsies at the time. I said, Yeah. I said, what would like a gypsy gangbang scene be like for the like and you could feel the oxygen get sucked out of the room? And I was like, Oh, yeah. I said, or how about this? How about a Catholic v. Protestant stomp, you know, with the people like, oh, no, too soon. And I'm like, yeah, this gap applies to so many more places than just me putting on a fucking headscarf and being fucking Aunt Jemima. That is the tiniest, least imaginative corner of this. And so the first thing I say is the person who is going to be the oppressed, the person who is going to be the one who is being subjugated has to lead the scene. They have to make the approach. You are absolutely not Caucasian people who walk around here being like, hey, boy, I want to da-da-da-da-da, not feeling it. I am not feeling it. And if anyone were to approach me that way, they would fall right off the list of potential partners for folks that I would want to do that with. And so, you know, this is one of the first things I tell people is like, it has to be someone you trust absolutely and either are willing to dump that relationship if things get real weird or the relationship is strong enough that you're going to work through the weirdness because there's so many pitfalls here. There's so much stuff that's going to come up. And as you say, everyone has that, like the Avenue Q song, everyone's a little bit racist. It's fucking true. And so if I'm negotiating with someone and they're like, oh, I'm going to get a seat because I'm absolutely not racist. I'm like, you're off the island. I want to talk to the person who's like, this is hard because I know this is going to bring up some shit for me. Yes. Now we can have a conversation because that is the truth. The truth is it's going to bring up shit for you. The truth is you are raised in a racist society that is based on genocide and enforced slavery and rape and pillage and harm that is ongoing to this day and continues to cause damage and resonates in the bones of this country. So don't you fucking tell me you're past it because you sure as fuck aren't. And I need you to be there and acknowledge that in order for me to even begin to think I'm going to look at you and let you say something. <laughs> it's kind of, so, you know, when I do conferences and stuff and people are talking about making spaces available, especially in the last four or five years, We've had this conversation about the language we use in DS and master-slave language. And yes. that in here. that's been driven by white leaders in the community having that conversation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I love the most is I had Marla Renee Stewart on the show last season. And she's like, we didn't all ask you all to have this fucking conversation without us. <laughs> she's like, who? tapped you all and said had this conversation like what black person came to you and asked this none none there was a whole there was some new kink site that was going to come up to try to be the next bet life 
And someone wrote to me and said, uh, just FYI, we're having conversations about making it across this new platform uh, against the rules to have any discussion of race play. And I said, what other types of, what else are they banning? Are they banning all edge play? Like, what? And so the guy who was starting the site, um, I, I got in contact with him because he's like, oh, we're having discussions about this. And I said, okay, well, I'd love to talk to you about it. He's like, yeah, I'd love to talk to you too, but I'm real busy. I got to get the site launched. I said, by this time the site is launched, it's too late. So um, obviously you don't really want to have this conversation. So good luck to you. And I'm like, I wrote that platform off because if you're going to start off singling that out because you can't handle it because you don't like it, because you don't have the ability to understand that we are walking in a very, very dangerous gray area. But you're also going to say to those of us who should be leading these conversations, like, what if we want this? Are we supposed to not use your platform because an entire chunk of our sexuality is 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 too difficult for you to moderate? You, you know, and she's absolutely right. Like, it's like no one like, oh, we're going to make sure like no one asked you that. I will tell you quite honestly, like, you know, one of the other deeply controversial scenes, you want to talk about Nazi role play, right? Of the Nazi role play scenes I have known, one of them was not initiated and led by a person of Jewish descent. One out of dozens. And that one was led by someone who was a descendant of the oppressors. And what they wanted to do was a revenge scene where they got the shit beaten out of them for the sins of their ancestors. <laughs> that was the scene they wanted to do. And I said, so you're going to deny this person that type of cathartic process, that type of, you know, not reproducing anything, not atoning for anything, but it's an, ex it's an emotional experience someone wants to have. And you're saying you can't do it because it's, it makes you uncomfortable. Everything we do is uncomfortable. Oh, but yet calling someone daddy, which is a direct incestuous reference, it's okay. That's all right. But 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 me calling someone master, if I'm black, is problematic. But if I'm white, it isn't. <laughs> and the reality is that, like, for some of us, we're not a monolith. There's some... African-American people who do DS and MS and use the terms master and slave with no twitch. When I hear white people use the word master, it makes my eye twitch. It genuinely does. I have not said don't do it, but I've said it makes me a little uncomfortable for a moment. Yes, it does. Not telling you what to do or not to do, but like you ask my opinion, that's what my opinion is. I'm like, oh, uh, even use the word hardly. Rarely, like by the time I refer to my owner as my master, I have set the stage. I have discussed what that means. I have discussed the history behind my use of the word. I have gotten to know you a little bit. We are 45 minutes into the class and now I'll drop M-Mom. Like that's how that works for me because I want you to understand where it's coming from. My intention is not to shock and dismay. And for a lot of these people, that's what they want. They want that like, which they want that shock. And so I guess you want to tamp those people down, the people who are out there trying to top the room by walking into the dungeon in their full authentic Nazi uniform, you know, like on a weekend that's not a edge play party. And you're just like, bro, you didn't, you couldn't, not cool. But most of us are just out here trying to live our lives. And so the fact that like a facet of our sexuality is difficult for you means that now it can't be discussed. It means that you are pushing people of color out 
again in another way, in a way that's condescending. Oh, we're going to take care of you. This is too difficult for you to talk about. We know what the fuck we're doing and we know where our boundaries are. Thank you very much. And we are living in America. You think we don't know how to handle your bullshit? Please. I like that you bring up that it can be cathartic. It can be working through those traumas because we hold those traumas in our body. And that's one reason so many of us are attracted to BDSM is it allows us to tap into those things in a very somatic way. So when you're, you're, you're talking about doing any type. Yeah. uh, A lot of the, reasons we're attracted to bdsm is it allows us to tap into those traumas held in our bodies yes, that we might yes. not have the words for yes so when it comes to navigating any type of of race play and especially stuff based in historic traumas because people mm-hmm. will reenact different types of things what do you suggest because there's plenty of people on listening to the show who are like yeah that's my thing and i've never told anybody um right. Mm. where do you start to figure out what the boundaries need to be for something like that? I will recommend, you know, I always, I like to recommend what the hell I have already done, which is to start to write my own porn is to say, let me just write this scene as though it were like a porno story and see what turns me on about it and see what scares me about it and just sit with it for a while and see where it lies in your body. See if you have anxiety. See if it's like, you know, making your toes cold, like what's going on for you and exploring that is the best way. First of all, for some people, that might be enough. They're just like, you know what? That was hot, but I don't need to actually go and do this shit. And so finding out what, how far you need to actually take this is also really important because some people will have these fantasies and be like, I want to do it. And they'd be like, wait, 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 maybe I don't want to do it. Fabulous. Don't have to do it. People are often shocked when they find out that this is not a daily aspect of my fucking life. I don't need to leave my fingers and toes to count the number of scenes I've done that were deliberately incorporating racial shit. It's not a lot because it's 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 a very rich dessert, let us say. <laughs> I don't need it that often. And so for me, those are things I dive into, come out of, and then I work on them. I just have things about the the thing in my head, what was good, what was bad, what was difficult, what went off the rails, what did I learn from that, who am I now versus who was I before I did that scene, and consider when you are like having this fantasy, your pornographic fantasy about the type of scene you're thinking you might want to do, and then if you say, okay, you know what, this is hot, the fantasy is great, and I think I do actually want to try to do this in real time don't start off by like buying your like partner the scarlet o'hara dress and getting you the like you know mammy butterfly dress and running around dreaming about you don't know nothing about birth and no baby don't start there start small like find someone you trust and just take like one aspect of that scene give yourself 10 minutes 10 minutes to just explore that whether or not it's you in a humiliating position, you know, whether or not it's you having someone call you certain names or saying certain things to you or, or whatever it is, find something small that you can do that just sort of like licks up the side of what the scene might taste like. And then wait and see how that feels for you. And then if you're like, 
oh, no, that brought up some shit. And give yourself time to feel it. Creep up to it. You don't have to jump in and do a full-blown fucking episode from Jump. And I highly recommend against that. Uh, if you are a very experienced player and you've been doing a lot of specifically emotionally difficult and or ordeal-based scenes and you know how your body and your mind is with those, you probably have a better uh, uh, foundation to move on to step two, which is saying, okay, let me plan this. Let me think about what this is going to look like. Uh, and then the next important thing is finding the person or people you're going to work with. And the first thing I want to say to you when you're sitting down with them is, what happens if this goes off? What happens if I look at you in the middle of the scene and I'm like, you racist motherfucker. I knew it the whole time. You were just waiting for this fucking moment. You know, like, what are you going to do if that happens? Like, think of all the fucked up shit. And I tell people, like, you know, like three or four anecdotes of horror story fuck level fucked up shit where people are just like sitting there with their mouths open. I'm like, yeah, that's how crazy it can get. I had a scene go so off the rails that damaged my relationship with this person who was a member of my extended leather family. And uh, to this day, our relationship never got back to the, to the closeness that it had. Are you ready for that? I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it could. That's how real this shit is. You know, you can put on your little priest cassock and, you know, be the bad father and spank the little Catholic schoolboy. But at the end of the day, you take that off and that goes back into your plan. I don't take off my fucking ethnicity, racial background, my skin color. None of that comes off. That is who I actually am. And so the tendrils and from that, I'm fine with it that way. But are you? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that level of psychodrama? Are you ready to bring the ancestors? Are you ready to tap into energies that are far bigger, deeper, older, and and more powerful than you are? And if you're not, fucking woo, don't do it. <laughs> Which is brilliant advice for any type of deeply emotional scene, whether it be mm -hmm. is based in race or prior trauma, sexual trauma, whatever, right? Yeah. Because I think a lot, you know, a lot of people play with those very taboo fantasies. And in the popular meter right now, a lot of stuff is out around consensual non-consent, again, a very yeah. taboo fantasy. Um, but understanding that that is just not something you jump into, even as somebody who's very experienced, it's not absolutely a first date play. Um, and it's interesting because I, 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 I often wonder if, you know, the kids, they are like, Hey, I read this book. I did this thing. People have so much more information available to them. Are they moving faster towards these more dramatic types of play? And I have seen there, there's been a shift. Like when I first came into the scene, Suspension bondage was a rare thing that you would see one or two people do in a month at four parties. Um, and they were all GPS engineers <laughs> who were just like, yes, my degree can now be used in my fucking sex life. And it was treated as edge play. And now you've got people like running up, you've got a whole dungeons where there's 10, 12, 14 suspension rigs because everybody needs a place to hang. And I'm like, y'all, this is edge play. Like, it, that is not something, I would not let anyone pick me up off of the ground if I had not seen them tie. But yet people are doing that. They're just like, oh, nice to meet you. Let's do suspension. And I'm like, what? You know, you might not die, but like, 
I did bondage fairly responsibly and I have a rotation. I have a rotator cuff injury. <laughs> now that I'm 54, I'm like, oh shit, a bitch should have stripped a little bit more before, before getting into those like Takata Koti positions with arms behind my back for an hour and a half. <laughs> it, it really needs to be respected. And the respect is for your fucking brain and your heart and your soul. You're respecting the fact that this might be very ordeal happy for you. And you want to make sure that you're going to land on your feet. And I think we've preferenced, especially on the social media sites, the more extreme types of play. Yes. It's becoming more popular. I'm working with uh, the National Coalition on Sexual Freedom. Yay! And they're, doing a, they're doing a lot of work around educating around erotic uh, suffocation and choking. Oh my God. I love that we're still having this. This conversation will never die, unintended. No, <laughs> no. But because it appeared in The Idol on HBO, I guess rates of people ending up in the ER with um, trauma induced from erotic suffocation and. What, what was The choking. Idol? Is that a, was that a TV show? Yeah, that they made it look like, oh, yeah, this is something that everybody can do. And there was no education around it. So a lot of 20-somethings are now just going, yeah, this will be fun to try on a Saturday night with no training. These motherfuckers are out here eating 50 Benadryl, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Kids, no, the choking with the choking, no. No. It's going to take a couple more. Cause I remember when I was in, was I in college? I think when, when there were a couple of celebrity deaths, like Michael Hudgens, guy from NXS yeah. passed away. And we were like, whoa, whoa, wait, you could die. <laughs> and you had, uh, uh, another, an older actor, uh, Carradine, I think David Carradine passed away as a result also of a, of a, a really unfortunate sexual accident. And so that to me has always been a present risk. Like even before I was actively doing shit, I was like, oh, motherfuckers die. I'm not trying to have that happen. Absolutely the fuck not. But I, I, I think that a lot of people will see shit and do shit even just without thinking that they're consciously copying it. What it is is it ignites something within them. And they just go, yes, I want that lock, lack of control. I want to feel that risk i want to feel that uh danger because it's often also very sexy there's a chemical thing that's going on and it's super sexy but it's like you know in the same way but after 50 shades of gray dropped i had to get online and tell people don't use the zip tie doing and i'm like guy a millionaire why is he using zip ties <laughs> like first of all Second of all, you cheap ass bastard, get some like decent restraints. Oh, I think oh my the God. best quote I heard, I heard on that is, I've never known a twenty-seven-year-old with a jet. I have known them with a Jetta. Oh, my, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my no, gosh! We, we, and I want to talk shit about that movie in those books, but you know what they did do is they made these conversations easy, and for that, I think it's actually not too bad. Like I'll never forget. Trying to change planes in um uh 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 where was it uh, Atlanta maybe part of the you know like Bible Belt town and I'm like going to the airport like whoosh 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 I'm like is that a cute display for Fifty Shades of Grey like out in front of the bookstore in the terminal 
And I was like, this is a sex book with explicit Sam sex scenes in it. And it's just up there for the mainstream. I'm like, that is great. I said, it's not something I will ever sell as a truth, but as a cultural event, very, very important for sexual freedom, for the ability for me. When people say, wait, what are you talking about? I'm like, 50 shades, you know that thing? Yeah, it's that. So now we can jump to the details and the specifics and consent. <laughs> well, and and negotiation. <laughs> yeah. All of that is the importance of telling stories and talking about our sex lives in in reality and what they look like. Um mm-hmm. when I put out my first book, The Love Letters to a Unicorn, the woman who did <laughs> the original cover did the original cover uh shared it with her mom. And her mom is this yeah. very conservative Midwesterner. And so the she's my tattoo artist. My tattoo artist went back home to see her mom over the holidays. Yeah. And she said her mom was like, yeah, you know, the first time um, a boy gave me a blowjob, we were in the barn because this is the Midwest and like the 50s. And she's like, and he just blew on it like it was soup. <laughs> she had never talked to her mom about sex before. And now her mom's going, yeah, he just blew on it like it was soup. And it was like the idea of like these kids in the barn, like sneaking away, like laying down on the hay bale, <laughs> like the horse blanket on top. And then, oh, yeah, baby, you like that? <laughs> Beautiful. How lovely that but they I had that conversation, them. though. That's awesome. Right? As soon as you start getting honest, because these are, th- we all do weird shit. Mm-hmm. We all like bizarre strange things that we think initially we're the only person who does and then it's like no there's this world which is why i think the the discussions you have especially around race play and different types of edge play that you do mm-hmm. uh, are so critical because there's so many of us who are like oh yeah that's that's really hot it's just something i i want people to say you know like the the rule 34 if it exists there is porn of it and there's nothing you can come up with that's going to be every once in a while. I'll just I'll poke in. Like, I, I, let me just out myself. Fa- huge fan of tentacle porn. Love, love tentacles doing bad things to people. I love it. I started typing. I would start typing in like random things. I'm like, okay, how about uh, like big tentacles and alien space monsters? I'm like, oh my gosh. Anything I can think of, I have found at least four. Items on the internet where someone has taken the time out of their precious life to create this and put this on the internet. You know, like when I started playing Pokemon Go, I made the mistake of like thinking, well, there can't be that much Pokemon porn. You know what? I was wrong. There is all the Pokemon porn. <laughs> There's no Pokemon I don't even know having sex. I'm just like, what Pokemon is that? <laughs> so you can't, you cannot, you cannot trailblaze in terms of your level of fucked upness you are not the most fucked up I, I i i fucking promise you you know i mean i have friends who have like cannibalism fantasies do they actually want to non-consensually like club someone over the head drag them into their basement cut them up and eat them not really <laughs> mostly because they would catch a charge super inconvenient no one wants to go to jail but are they having those fantasies and finding a way to safely like have those like wank fest where they're 
feasting on the nubile flesh of this hottie that they just like fuck now why not why the fuck not your body your brain is your playground do with it what you will and the thing is that the more settled you become about these things and here's where i move into the woo shit if you really have a desire to make it real knowing what you want will enable you when you make eye contact with that person who is as freaky as you have the guts to open your mouth and say, you know what I really love? I'd love for you to jam an apple in my mouth. <laughs> Pour some fucking gravy over my ass and eat me out. Like, that's what I would like today. And to have that person be like, well, would you like sausage gravy or <laughs> gravy? So total aside, but you bring up the cannibalism fantasy. And several years ago, there was a story that went around the internet about a guy who lost his foot in a motorcycle accident and then he wasn't he he wanted closure so um he took his foot home from the hospital and he looked into getting it taxidermied but it was too expensive so he called his ex-girlfriend who was dating a chef and said would you cook my foot and we can eat it and then he invited 11 of his friends and 10 people came and consensually ate fajitas oh my god it's like, i'm telling this to I my was like, partner how much meat in your foot <laughs> i'm telling this to my partner and his yeah. response was well clearly he was one of those people who had one black friend because that was the one who didn't come <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's oh. Although I will say, I will say back when I was living in SoCal and running with a pack of feral lesbians, I did attend a placenta eating ceremony. Yes, I did. Because I was like, you know what? There's some things that come across my path and I'm like, I'm going to do this. So I can say I did. (laughs) You don't want to do it? (laughs) I want to be able to say, however many years later, exactly what I just (laughs) said. But again, I was like, I was like, this is one of those things where you're just like, mm, mm, yes, this is definitely, definitely uh, uh, a crunchy lesbian moment. Of, it's like, yeah, we're going to have a placenta, we're going to all bond and like have a spirit family for the baby and the bond. With you. And I was just like, oh, it tastes like liver. This is terrible. <laughs> when my sister gave birth in San Francisco, they did offer a placenta consultant. Yeah. You see the many options she had. So it is a thing. She's yeah, like, that healthy. shit's some bio waste. Please bury it. But uh... <laughs> I know about some people who have it like freeze dried and then make capsules out of it because there's supposed to be a lot of nutrients, I guess, in there, which makes sense. You know, it did. It spent almost a year doing nutrient moving. So, OK. So before we go, what are you currently grateful for? Oh, wow. The first thing I will say I'm grateful for to sort of, you know, go off topic is it's a mental health thing. Um, a couple of years ago, I was able to start doing ketamine therapy for my anxiety and depression. And I will say I now consider my depression to be in remission and my anxiety to be very manageable. And I'm so grateful to no longer be in a place where this sort of flat wall of hopelessness is is always, you know, a couple of feet in front of me, which is how I felt I lived for a long time. So I'm so grateful for that. By 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 means of that, I'm grateful for um my owner slash husband, Eric Fibritas, 
who is a miraculous person and our relationship is so amazing not because it's easy because it's really hard sometimes he came with a raft of issues and luggage and baggage that like i had never seen before you know like literal nazi baby raised by nazis had to be deprogrammed from that definitely neurospicy to the nth degree you know like autistic genius music boy math weirdo all that shit who sometimes has me contemplating body disposal measures that i have observed on the latest true crime podcast and pushes me to grow and to have patience and compassion and expansive love in a way that i had never thought myself fucking capable of um and he's given me the life so far beyond anything i even fantasized about like my initial ideas of what ms were when i first came into the sea and are blown out of the fucking water by how he not only lets me be who i am but gives me the room to be more than i am um, it's it's incredible and the synergy and the synchronicity of us both being artists and being artists who have media that work together so beautifully is fucking miracle and i'm incredibly grateful for that um and i'm grateful for my people um for my peripheral friends for the friends who are like my inner circle people i'm so grateful that at any point any thought i have any conversation i need to have it doesn't matter what it is i have people i could say anything to anything and feel safe and that is a huge gratitude to me. that's phenomenal if our listeners want to find you, if they want to take a class, if they want to get coaching with you, if they want to find Hyena, because I know you now have that up on your site, plug all the things. Yeah. So uh, you can check out Molina.com, M-O-L-L-E-N-A. I am Molina on all the social meds. So, you know, I think it's Molina underscore Lee underscore Williams underscore hot for Instagram. But if you Google Molina, you'll find all my shit. It's 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 I got to most of them first. I also do consulting and coaching and what the fuck do you want me to talk to you about or yell at you about or or give you shit about or encourage you to do. And so you can uh, Google Kink Doula. And this is uh, something that I offer. It's a sliding scale thing and it's on an as needed basis. So I have clients who are every everything from perverts who've been doing this for longer than I have to folks who are really not kinky at all, but want to see if that's something that they want to explore and you have a safe space to literally say any motherfucking thing you want and i'm really excited to be able to offer that as well and uh, i actually just started an only fans i don't know what it's gonna be yet but i had the wrong idea of what only fans was and so now i'm like wait a second this might actually be the perfect sector for me to be able to like say i'd love to do a class this week but i don't want to like sell tickets and you know get registrations and all the shit that's pain in the ass. So I'm going to be moving in that direction as well. Um, and I'm on TikTok as well. And uh, yeah, so find me. me. I'm easy to find. There's not a lot of Molinas. And, and there's none like you. Thank you so much for coming on the Thank show. Thank you so much, Madame. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. And listeners will have all of those links and more in the show notes for you. Remember to like, follow, subscribe, you know, do those things. Thank you so much for being here and we'll talk soon.
morning, listeners. This is your host, Auntie Vice. This month's Big Queer Book Club meets on Discord on February 14th at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. East Coast Time. This month, we are reading Henry Hoke's Open Throat. It's a fantastic book, and Henry will be joining us. So sign up, read the book, and come for the discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.